Welcome to the Pirate's Eye Podcast, produced by the Seton Hall Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. I'm your host, Bianca Velez, fellow pirate of the class of 2010, and each month I'll be sitting down with an alumnus to chat about their career, their life journey, and the role that Seton Hall played in getting them where they are today, or continues to play. In this next episode, I chat with proud pirate Matthew Horace, who graduated Seton Hall with a master's degree in human resources leadership and training in 2013. Matt shares with us his fascinating career journey from working in the U.S. Department of Justice to serving in his current role as Chief Security Officer for the Mayo Clinic. He shares with us his journey as a mentor and as a coach and why it's so important to him to give guidance to the next generation. He even walks us through his process of becoming an author of a critically acclaimed book on policing. Take a listen to this next episode of the Pirate's Eye podcast. Nat, welcome to the Pirate's Eye podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fabulous, Bianca. Thanks for having me. Of course. And you know what? I want to share something with you. I love being able to sit and chat with Seton Hall alumni who did not experience the university at an undergraduate level because we tend to think, us undergraduate alumni, tend to think that our experience is very uniform. It's it is the Seton Hall experience. So I really enjoy taking these opportunities to talk to an alum like you, who actually came out of Seton Hall with a graduate level experience. So what I find is that although these experiences are kind of different, quote unquote, we also end up seeing the shared experience and the common thread. So I'm very excited to talk to you today and see kind of where those experiences are different, but also that common thread that came out when we had our pre-call. Oh, that's wonderful. I look forward to chatting. And you're absolutely right. The experiences are so different from when you're 17 to being an adult learner and having sort of a different appreciation, right, for the university for different reasons. So let's jump Absolutely. In. Absolutely. So you came to Seton Hall, but your undergraduate is from Delaware State. So what's that road? How did you end up at Seton Hall? Was that kind of Delaware State right to Seton Hall? or something happened in between? How did you end up in South Orange? Well, that's a great question. A lot happened in between, notwithstanding the fact that um, myself and my family moved about nine times. I think as we chatted before, I was a federal agent for 24 and a half years, and really we lived all over the country. So I ended up living, ironically, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey for 10 years, which was the longest I'd ever lived anywhere. So um, I was very proud of having attended Delaware State University, one of the nation's historically black colleges and universities. And, um, you know, being in New Jersey, you can't help but become a part of the fabric of, of, of tradition. And Seton Hall is a part of that tradition. Yes. Yeah, so you were you were working for a very long time before you decided to get a master's degree. How did you make that decision? Well, I, I knew at some level that I was going to need to go back and get some more uh, credentials and certifications. And, and actually, another Seton Hall alumni, a family, very good uh, uh, friends of mine, almost, they're, they're basically family of mine, Kent and Sandra Momfort, had been going to the police um, studies program, and they really, really, really pushed me to go ahead and look at Seton Hall. And at that time, you know, I was, I was commuting 70 miles each day to work. I was coaching my kids and taking care of parents. 
And I just didn't see myself doing it at that time, but I applied. I looked into Seton Hall. I knew that Seton Hall would be a great fit for me. I grew up in the East Coast, so I'm a huge Big East fan when it comes to heat <laughs> and uh, understanding what that tradition meant. You know, being right there in New Jersey and right there in South Orange, I, I was able to experience the opportunity of attending, you know, a school that was steeped in Catholic tradition. And uh, I, I never looked back, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So I thank Kent and Sanja Monfort for really pushing me to pursue that advanced degree and pushing me towards Seton Hall. I love that. So I knew that you were going to say something related to sports brought you to the Seton Hall. And I also know that you were a student athlete in your undergrad years. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Did I see somewhere in your bio something about New York Giants? Right. Well, when I got out of school, I was afforded the opportunity. I played football at Delaware State. I was a scholarship athlete there. And, you know, I really had an opportunity to learn and develop and grow as a young person under the auspices and guides of an athletic program, uh, having grown up in Philly, right, uh, basketball town, fully aware of Seton Hall and all, all the other Big East schools. So uh, when I got out of school, I had an opportunity to try out for the New York Giants. I, I was cut. Uh, but, you know, it was it was a great experience and it was a really wonderful way to cap off a successful college career. I, in, in, in a lot of my coaching and mentoring now to adults and, and young learners, I tell them, I started the program at Delaware State. We were two and nine. And in my senior year, we were nine and two. So I learned a lot about winning and losing and overcoming adversity and all those sorts of things. So, you know, understanding what the athletes go through and watching the NCAAs this year and watch, watching Seton Hall, you know, advance into the tournament. It, it was just, it was exciting. And it always is. Right, right. And that flip in your undergrad years of your record is pretty impressive. So shout out to you and that team. And I think it's also really cool that you were afforded an opportunity to try out for the New York Giants. I mean, not everybody can say something like that. So interesting experience. Well, you know, and cap that off with the fact that I played at Delaware State for the first um, white coach of a historically black university. And ironically, he is from Newark and he went to Valesburg High School. So um, he, he recruited pretty heavily out of New Jersey, and you know I love him to this day. That is that is fascinating. So you have this career. You're working, um, as you said, as an agent, mm-hmm. and you want to transition. So talk to me a little bit more, a little bit more about that. Right. What did you envision your career looking like when you started your undergraduate degree or when you graduated from college? What did you envision your career looking like, and is it the road? that you envisioned? Did you kind of detour? Walk me through that. Right. Well, hey, listen, we all we all take some detours, I think. You learn that over time. And sometimes the line is straight and sometimes a little curvy. But, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And I uh, I got my undergraduate degree in English. <laughs> right. In English of all things. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, um, Henry David Thoreau and Wordsworth and Chaucer. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it. But when I left Delaware State University, I started applying to police organizations. I, I, I sort of had a passion for trying to be a part of the change I wanted to see in our society. And I started getting calls from police organizations. And, you know, to be able to communicate and write and speak, um, you know, with, is a big is a big add to police organizations because everything you do goes into a report. So mm-hmm. so I did that. And I took on my first role uh, at the Arlington County Police Department in Virginia. But I knew that eventually I wanted to go fed. So uh, I left there after a couple of years and joined the ATF. And, um, you know, I was really blessed at the ATF to be giving some amazing opportunities 
um, you know, you learn along the way that you won't get everything you ask for, but mm -hmm. many times you'll get exactly what you need. Um, I transferred and promoted up six or seven, eight times, lived, wow. all, lived all around the United States. And by the time I got to Seton Hall, I did have some life experience and I felt like it was just a good fit and a good match at the right time for the right reasons. And, you know, you just never know where life is going to take you because when you look at, when you look at the uniqueness of Seton Hall and you think about the fact that the university was founded in 1856 and you look at the history of, you know, St. Elizabeth and Seton and the steep tradition in the Catholic university, you know, she was the first citizen born in the U S to be given the title of saint. Mm -hmm. And now you juxtapose that with where I work now as a chief security officer for Mayo Clinic. And the Mayo Clinic was founded in 1863, only seven years between those by Franciscan sisters. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so it's really, you know, every day I wake up and I go to work for the Mayo Clinic, the nation's leading healthcare organization. And I think about how the clinic was started, who it was started by, and how ironic is it that I would attend the oldest diocesan university in the United States in Seton Hall, founded on the Catholic tradition. And how ironic it is, and I'm working for the number one healthcare organization in the, in the country that was also founded by Franciscan sisters. So I always say, you know, there's someone up above guiding our steps. I've been, right. really, I've been really blessed to been given amazing opportunity, but also with that, at Seton Hall, really pushing that servant leadership piece. So I kind of feel like I've been practicing servant leadership for so very long, it's become a, a part of my DNA. I think you have. When we when we had our pre-call, something that echoed over and over and over was the role that you have with your mentees, right? And I don't I don't even know that it was something that we were necessarily talking about, but kind of in between all of the questions that I had for you, I kept hearing you repeat, you know, when you're talking to young people, when you have a mentee, you tell them this and you tell them that. So Besides your career, and we're going to get into that in a second, besides your current role, what I should say, you mentioned over and over this service of giving back to young people, of being able to coach, of being able to help people develop. I'm sure you have a very busy schedule and you have a family and you have a lot going on, but why is that so important? Well, it's so important for me because, uh, you know, none of us take these steps alone and no steps have I taken, have I taken alone. And there's always been someone there to help me, guide me, or pick me up when I've fallen. And I know that now, you know, being in a position where I can pick others up when they fall, keep them from falling, or just keep bringing people to the right rooms at the right tables. Many times, it's just a matter of access. And, and let's face it, when you look at Hall, Seton Hall's mission and vision and purpose, you know, the idea is to teach and educate students to reach their full potential as servant leaders. And right. servant, servant leadership will take you a lot further than any other type of leadership, because at the end of the day, mm. it's going to really be about all those people that we help along the way and pave a way for their success. And I know even throughout my coaching business, you know, it, it's, you know, there's a side of me that says, as a mentor, I never, I never fail to return a call from someone who needs help. And then there's the business side of me and leading people at work in my current role, but also in, as, a, as a professional coach and executive coach, everybody needs a push. Everybody needs to determine for themselves, how do you get there from here? And, and quite frankly, how did you do it? How did you go from being a kid growing up in the mean streets of Philly to being a C-suite executive and major, you know, major Fortune 500 organizations? How do you get there? And there is a way to do it. And there's a way that other people will do it behind you. 
And community is such an important piece of that. So your emphasis on creating community, keeping community while you're aspiring and developing and continuing your own career, it's, it's really important. And I love that you're sharing that because I think when when I started this conversation, right, I was talking about how when I speak with Seton Hall alumni, there's always this common thread. And I think oftentimes, or if not all of the time, that common thread tends to be the feeling of community within the Seton Hall network and the feeling of um, servant leadership. So thank you for sharing that. And tell me, a little bit more about your current role. So we talked, we talked, we're talking about a lot in a little bit. So I I, want to get more done and I want to dive in a little deeper in some of these things. So walk us through your current role and what, what does that mean? Right. Well, my, my current role, I'm the chief security officer for the Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Clinic is the number one healthcare organization in the United States. And in many ways, the number one healthcare organization in the world. Uh, We provide a, a caring and healing environment for over 1.3 1.3 million patients throughout the United States and abroad. Uh, we have operations throughout the world and here in the United States. And we take on the cases that people can't get resolved with in other areas. And I'm really proud to work for an organization that provides so much hope day in and day out to people that really aren't able to get answers anywhere else. And again, when I juxtapose the fact that I'm at the Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Clinic was founded by the Franciscan sisters And I juxtapose that with having gone to Seton Hall for my graduate studies and the origins of uh, Seton Hall and St. Elizabeth Ann Seton and the Catholic tradition. It's it's awe-inspiring for me, but also you mentioned the community. Uh, I've had the the opportunity to meet Seton Hall grads all over the world on airplanes and airports and in foreign countries and domestically. And there seems to be a common thread, number one, that our alumni and our students, they support the university. And number two, that they have very, very fond memories of their experiences at Seton mm-hmm. Hall. And, mm-hmm. they, and they never regret the decision. And you know, what's more, what's more impressive to me is when you look at the size of the university, you know, and you look at the, the the tone of our sports programs, and you look at big schools like Clemson and USC, you know, we're not a university that has 60 or 70,000 students, but, no. we are, but we are strong in character and integrity, and we're putting people out in the world to be really global citizens. So it's always it's always been my goal to convince and, and educate people to understand that the world is a lot larger than where you stand at the moment, whether you're on campus at Seton Hall, whether you're commuting on a bus from Newark down to South Orange, whether you're doing something else and not going to school, there's a great big world out here with a lot of opportunity and a lot of learning to be had. Right, right. You transitioned from police work to healthcare work. And I'm wondering, what was that transition like? Was that difficult? Was it seamless? It seems like it's kind of two different worlds. Right. Well, I always say everybody sees the glory, but they don't know the story. Um, Right. This is my third uh, opportunity in corporate America. So I've had two others uh, since I left government in 2012. Uh, the The first opportunity was in New York City working for a security services firm in New York, where I really learned uh, a lot about business. You know, government is one thing, but profit businesses is a whole different environment. And I really learned the cadence of business and what it means to work for a multi-million dollar organization. Uh, I left that organization in 2017 and actually was unemployed for about a year while I searched for the other opportunity. So again, it goes back to, you know, how do you navigate adversity and and challenges and setbacks? Mm. Um, 
I left that role, took on a role in Denver, Colorado, in my second C-suite position as a uh, senior vice president of security operations. And, you know, I, I, I was loving life in, in Denver, Colorado. Um, my family had lived there before. I had a really, really great position. It's a great place to live. And I got recruited by a recruiter uh, looking to fill the role at the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, I mean, listen, any, any opportunity you have to work for the number one anything in any capacity, you have to at least look at it. So people had mentored to me as I mentored to others. You can always have a conversation, even if you're happy with what you're doing uh, today or tomorrow. You can always have a conversation with someone because it's always nice to be asked and not mm-hmm. be the one always, always asking for something else. So in this case, they were asking. I, I wasn't even looking for another job. And that just goes <laughs> to show you that sometimes opportunities just drop in your lap. question is, mm-hmm. what, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to punt? Are you going to catch it? <laughs> you got to drop it. You got to fumble. Right. 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 Now, at what point is it that you actually find the time to write a book? <laughs> I know that you have an English degree and you really put that English degree to work, yes. even though if we looked at just your career titles, you would think that you didn't. But when we look at you with your additional title of author, you really did put that to work. So tell me a little bit about when and how it comes to your mind to to write a book and the process in doing that and and what you've learned and what what has come out of that. Right. Well, I think uh, what happened when I was living and working in New York City between 2012 and 2017, I was also serving as a paid on-air contributor to CNN and NBC and ABC and a couple of the networks. So I was being called fairly regularly to, to speak to and speak about uh, law enforcement, homeland security, security operations planning, and those sorts of things. And during that period, there seemed to be um, a, 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 uh, an inordinate amount of social justice issues involving police use of force and those sorts of things. So right. during so during that time, I was provided opportunity uh, and visibility on the big stage. You know, when you're on when you're on uh, E or you're on NBC talking about the Boston Marathon bombing, doing ten interviews a week it sort of gives you a lot of visibility and it gives people a lot of visibility to you. So mm-hmm. after I did that for three or four or five years, I started to believe that I had something else to offer to the world in terms of writing a book. I naturally felt leaving the federal government that I had stories that might um, get people to turn pages, but I didn't know that it was going to evolve into, you know, some of the country's largest social justice uh, challenges over, you know, between 2013 and 2017, which have right. evolved, evolved to even more social right. justice challenges. But then having gone to Seton Hall and the Police Graduate Studies Program, I just kind of felt that if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? Uh, I connected with a publisher while I was in New York City and had that profile at that time of being on television, you know, every other day or a couple of days a week. And they agreed to uh, sort of uh, develop a storyline and sort of talk about policing and what's working and what's not. But also juxtaposing that with my own career and different things that I saw when I was on the job as a, as a police officer and as a federal agent, but also as a federal law enforcement executive. Right. And what was the reception of that book like within your network or within, you know, just outside of your network? How how do you feel as the person that wrote that book? How do you feel that it's been received? Well, I think uh, then and now are two different um, narratives. I think okay. I think at the time when things were hot and, you know, coming from policing and I know, you know, we tend to be very, um, very clickish. We don't we don't want to be challenged on things. We don't want to be told that we need to change what we have to do. It's very difficult at times. When sure. the book when the book first came out, you know, I think there was many people that wanted to read it as there were 
people throwing stones saying, why did he do this? Another person, you know, taking shots at police. What people didn't understand when the book was released was the book is actually supportive of policing, but the book is also supportive of doing policing in a different way. Mm-hmm. Now, as time wore on and more people read it, then it became evident and more people understood that it was very balanced writing. And now I go around the country and talk to police academies and state chiefs associations and do book tours and things. So it took a little while for people to understand this wasn't an attack on police. It was really an attack on society because um, as we all know now, it's, it's not me talking. It's, it's, it's just the way it is. There are some systematic barriers that have been put in place that involve people of color in the United States that even if policing weren't the issue, there's still systematic barriers. So I kind of feel like we should always use our access to help others and shed light on things that people don't understand. So in the book, we had an opportunity to educate people about policing, but also had the opportunity to uh, educate policing about people. And what most people didn't know about me when I wrote the book was that when I was a teenager, I was attacked by a Philadelphia police canine uh, in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, in a, in a rogue incident where uh, some officers ended up getting uh, fired and you know the department was sued. And you know, just a whole, so, so again, just bringing my experience to the table to help again, to help others. And the book has really opened uh, doors for opportunity for speaking and coaching, mentoring to others, and you know, having my voice heard to police executives around the country. But uh, I wasn't the first and I won't be the last. Sure, sure, sure. I think it's fascinating to even put all these pieces together where you, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, going into your, into your career after your undergraduate degree, you decided you were going to go into police work and the exact thing that you said was like you wanted to be the change that you see in the world and then so many years later it's like that continues to echo and you decide to write this book and create an even bigger impact on that community and i think it's fascinating to see the way those pieces connect even though it's not right away or maybe you didn't even see the end goal when you began the journey right no, I, I absolutely did it, but I have a mantra that sort of drives my coaching business, and that is, you know, to choose choose courage over avoidance. And what that simply means is that when you get to the point when you know you're doing the right thing, but it requires courage, then do it and do it again and do it again. I, I know when I wrote the book, I, I remember before the book got released, so the late John Lewis, who was also my fraternity brother, uh, helped me to open the book tour in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And he came out to Barnes & Noble and introduced me and sort of talked about the book. He had read it previously. And I remember that the day before that being scared to death. I'm like, this book is coming out tomorrow. My name is on it. It's going to go to Barnes and Noble and bookstores all around the world. And they're going to be people that don't like it. And I remember, sure. and I remember thinking like, there was, I had this like feeling of dread. And, mm. then all, and then all of a sudden I said, well, it doesn't matter. It's coming out tomorrow morning. And, and, <laughs> and that very day, you know, I interviewed in Atlanta on Circle of Sisters and, you know, HLN and other networks and NBC about it. And, and it became clearer that for those of us that are afforded opportunities to push the envelope and use your voice, shame on you if you don't, for whatever the cause is, you know, it could be for women's rights, for child rights, for breast cancer. If you have a voice and you have a story to tell and you don't tell it, then, you know, it's almost like one of the uh, social, one of the social justice people I heard a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, shame on you if you don't use your voice to help others where you can. Right. I absolutely was just mind blown when you said, and it sounds so simple now and I'm going to repeat it, but it just hit me so hard 
choose courage over avoidance. As you were telling your story, as you were talking about, you know, deciding to write the book, I was thinking to myself, I find it so amazing when people accomplish these types of things, like writing a book, which I think is a a very big deal. (laughs) Writing a book, I, I always wonder if I could be inside of somebody's mind, I would love to see the way self-doubt does or doesn't play a role in the way you're able to kind of manage that and push it to the side and pursue something that is so scary for lack of another word. <laughs> right. Well, well, we know, we know now that we all have these, these conversations in our head that sort of create our own obstacles for us. And many times, you know, if, if that obstacle isn't in your way, then you can remain focused on what the outcome is you're looking to get. So um, I try to help others now to understand that. And there have been others along the way that have helped me to understand that. And that, listen, this goes back to if you want to be a state trooper, well, the police academy is going to be tough. Yes, it is, but you'll get through it. Um, mm. If you want to be a police officer and you're the first black officer, the first Hispanic officer, the first, first Asian officer, it's going to be tough, but you will get through it. Listen, one of the people I respect the most on the planet, right, having gotten to know her and worked with her, is Camelia Valdez, who is another Seton Hall graduate, proud pirate. Um, she's the uh, prosecutor up in um, Passaic County, New Jersey. And, you know, she's the, the list of firsts that she's been and, you know, who she's been around and how she served has just been unmatched. And anybody who is the first in any field is going to catch it at some point. But it's not really what happens to us, it's how we deal with what happens to us. So she is one of the people, particularly being a Seton Hall alumni, that's been really instrumental and really inspirational. And she remains just a total inspiration to me every day. Shout out to Camelia. Yes, we've we've definitely done some programs with her and have highlighted her. So I'm glad to hear that you guys are connected and you mentioned her. And I absolutely love when people uh, from Seton Hall are like, only it like they say six degrees of separation and it's like so much less degrees of separation when you go to Seton Hall. You better believe it. And, 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 that, and, that, and I love that about the school. I love that about the connections. You don't have to go very far to find another Seton Hall pirate. Uh, right. Anywhere in the United States, we have Seton Hall alumni at Mayo Clinic. And and every now and then you'll see someone, you talk to them on email and, they, and the stories are all the same. I love my school. Right, right, right. So, Matt, I feel like you've already accomplished so much. Is there still items on your on your list that you're aspiring to accomplish? Is there is there more? Well, I think I think when you're when you're a true servant leader, there's always more because there are more people that needed to be helped, coached, mentored, you know, you know, just given a hand to help move in their way. So for me personally, I'd like to write a couple more books along the way. Uh, Mm. I'm really engaging my coaching business more and that's helping me to be a better leader, both at work and just in life in general, because what you learn along the way is that truly, truly, we're all in this together and we're just in different phases of our greatness, our goodness, or our struggles at different times. Mm -hmm. And it really takes all of us to come together. It takes you to help me and me to help you. And maybe it's that, maybe it's you want to write a book and you, you you need that one piece that'll help you get from idea to paper or maybe get from paper to a publisher. And maybe that'll help you you know, reach your goals and reach your dreams. So never stop helping, never stop giving, never stop serving to be a true servant leader. It's been a real honor for me to advance my career after going to Seton Hall. And it's a real honor for me to tell anyone that I'm a proud pirate. I'm, I'm really proud of my undergraduate school in a, in a different way 
but the graduate degree means more at a different time for different reasons. Right. I can understand that for sure. So if we're, if, if let's say we had a group of young Seton Hall pirates here with us and you wanted them to walk away with just one takeaway from our conversation today, what would that be? I would go back to something um, John Lewis and others said along the way, because they had so many firsts and they had so many adversities. I would just leave it very simple. Don't quit. Mm. Don't quit. Whatever it is you're, you're doing, just don't quit. You're in school and things aren't going exactly the way you want. And you're wondering if that's the place for you to be. Just don't quit. Just come back. Come back tomorrow and then come back next week and then come back next semester. Just don't quit. Um, again, if you look at if you look around us, there are just people who inspire us every day who just don't quit. I would just just don't quit. And when you when you I belong to an organization called the 100 Black Men. And we say we have a saying that says what they see is what they be. And that really pertains to young black men. And, and really, it could pertain to anyone. Find someone that's marching on a cadence that you find respectful and inspiring and try following that cadence. And, and even try asking them for help and say, look, I need a mentor. I mean, it happens to me all the time. I spend a lot of time speaking to a lot of people about this very issue, but find someone who's marching to the cadence that you want to march to and ask them for help. And, and even if you don't ask them, follow their path. Where did they start? How did they get there? You know, maybe there's a model, maybe there's a cadence that you can follow to achieve the, the exact same things. Matt, I feel so inspired by this conversation. <laughs> you have no idea. Well, I thank you. I thank you for that. I'm inspired by the conversation <laughs> because every time, every time you talk about it, it reminds you of, of the different things that you've done, but also the different things that are yet to be done. So I appreciate the time and opportunity. And listen, as, as I've said to people along the way, when my schools call, I come. And when Seton Hall calls, I come. When Delaware State calls, I come. And there are other schools too along that list that when they say, hey, we need you for this or that or the other, I'm making my way to try to get there. I love that. And I want to thank you so much for being a proud pirate, for coming on to today's show, for mentoring those that are coming after us. It's important work that you're doing. So thank you so much, Matt. Thank you very much. And go pirates. That's right. <laughs> Matt is one of more than 100,000 alumni who demonstrate what great minds can do with a Seton Hall education. Remember to stay up to date with all of Seton Hall's alumni engagement opportunities and to view recordings of past virtual events that you may have missed, visit www.shu.edu slash hall hub. Share the news of this podcast with your friends. Be sure to follow us on social media at Seton Hall Alumni. And of course, if you know of a pirate we should have our eye on, do not hesitate to email us at alumni at shu.edu. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Seton Hall Pirate's Eye Podcast.